We're going to look at Jesus now. I love the flow of our, of our worship service. Uh, we started, Father, let your kingdom come, and then that song, Thy will be done. Now next in the Lord's prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. And so I'm trusting that God will nourish and feed us, strengthen us today as we look to his word together. We're going to continue in a sermon series we began last week through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be working through this all the way until Easter time. So settle in. And uh, last week, Pastor Tom kicked us off, opened us up to this, this wonderful gospel, the first written account of the life of Jesus. Uh, and he addressed two, two big questions that we're going to keep coming back to and that Mark keeps coming back to, two questions we need to always come back to ourselves. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? I found myself strangely moved last week as I heard the sermon, not that I'm not always moved when Pastor Tom preaches, but last week was, was different. I was kind of brought back as we dove into the Gospel of Mark to my years as a, as a brand new believer in Jesus, as a college student. I had come to faith in him, and, and I joined this group Bible study, an intensive study all through the Gospel of Mark, months long. And every week, I was captivated by these questions. I had come to faith in Jesus, and I was consumed by knowing more, who is this? Now, I knew enough to put my faith in him, but I also knew he was so far beyond me. There was so much more to, to know. I, I was consumed by wanting to know Jesus. And likewise, knowing what does it mean to follow him. And each week, kept finding that the answers were more and more profound than I'd ever imagined. And I was brought back to that as we dive into this study. But I think what was also moving last week for me was to realize that over 20 years later, and having come back to these passages over and over again, they're no less compelling, but only more. And the answers to these questions, you know, who is Jesus? He's, he's no less fascinating and amazing to me than he was then, but only more. And finding that following him is every bit as profound as it was then, even more. So we're going to dive back in today. If you'll open up, we'll pick up where we left off in Mark chapter 1. It's page 707 in most of the Pew Bibles. And we found last week that Mark, as a writer, really doesn't mess around. He kind of gets straight to the point as a direct communicator. The very first verse of this gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of God. Getting right to it. There's no gradual buildup or big reveal. Mark comes right out with it. Here's who we're talking about here, who's, who we're dealing with. He makes his claim, and as the gospel goes on, he'll make his case that Jesus is who he says he is, and we'll look at that today. Uh, and it moves quickly from there. We looked actually at four stories last week that move in rapid succession, four episodes from the life of Jesus as things get underway, and we're going to look at four more today. That move quickly. So I'm going to read through all of them, and then we'll work back through it one at a time. So we're going to begin in verse 21, read through the end of chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. 
The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of God. Now, we've covered a lot here, and each of these four stories really could, could deserve a sermon all on its own, but we'll work through each of them. I've picked out a, a key phrase from, from each story to highlight something, something we learn about who Jesus is here. And we'll call this first section, the first story, verses 21 to 28, with authority, with authority. Jesus has just had his first disciples begin following him, and so they travel first to a synagogue in the town of Capernaum where these disciples are from. And this is a common thing, a common practice for any visiting teacher or rabbi to be given the floor for a while in a, a Sabbath gathering to share something from God's law to impart to the people. This happened with a lot of people. It was, no, you know, it was a pretty ordinary thing, but it became a very extraordinary thing when Jesus showed up to teach. Because the people were amazed at his teaching. Now, wouldn't we like to hear what it was, what he said? Mark doesn't really seem concerned to tell us the content of his teaching. He's more emphasizing the manner of his teaching here. They're amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Is it that he was just a more compelling presence, a teacher, than the teachers of the law? Well, probably, but that's not the point here. When it, com when it comes to authority, any good teacher of the law, then or now, gets their authority to teach by appealing to an authority higher than themselves. So a teacher of the law on a Sabbath day in a synagogue in those days 
would appeal to the law of God and, and would teach in such a way that was, you know, the, the Torah says this, or Moses wrote this, or the prophets spoke this. They're appealing to authority greater than themselves in teaching the people. And any good teacher now ought to do that as well. And the only reason I or anyone on our preaching team have any authority to speak into your lives is to the degree that we rightfully come under and reflect an authority greater than ourselves. That we say, well, this is what is written in God's Word. This is what is in Scripture, what the Bible says. This is what Jesus said. This is what the apostles taught. We're, it's not in ourselves. We, we are to come under and reflect an authority greater than ourselves. But Jesus... If you look at his teaching in the Gospels, he doesn't do that. Instead of saying, so-and-so said, or the law says, he says, I say to you, very truly, I tell you, not appealing to any authority greater than himself because there isn't one. He appeals just to his own authority. And so it's not just the case that he's a more compelling stage presence than the teacher of the law. It's that he's speaking from a whole different place and is on a whole different plane, speaking with the authority of God himself. It's a big claim. If anyone today does that, you should be suspicious. But Jesus does it, and C.S. Lewis famously said that, you know, the level of authority that Jesus claims in his speaking and teaching, there's really only one of three things that's possible. That either he is a liar, or that he's a lunatic, or that he is Lord. To speak with that level of authority, either he was lying, or he was misrepresenting himself, misrepresenting God, deceiving people, or he was a little crazy, perhaps under a delusion that he was God when he really wasn't and, and a little bit out of his mind, or third possibility that he actually is who he says he is, and he has that kind of authority. His authority to teach is either real or it isn't. And so Jesus demonstrates then and proves his authority here, not with an argument, but with an act of power, an authoritative act showing authority over an evil spirit when he casts a demon out of a man in the synagogue. Now, just to say, when Mark refers to evil spirits here, he's not being metaphorical or symbolic, and he's not just reflecting a primitive understanding of natural things that we understand better these days. He's ta talking about evil spirits, spirit, things, beings in the spiritual realm that are opposed to God, adversarial to his purposes, and out to destroy people. Those are real. They're real things. Most of the church worldwide is profoundly aware of that, of the spiritual realm and the battle therein, but we tend to downplay it in the West. Although the Bible is very clear, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you honestly take a walk around the streets of Worcester with even a little bit of spiritual discernment, it becomes clear that this is a reality, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy people's lives. We ignore it to our own peril and to that of others. And the Bible says a whole lot about it, but for our purposes today, what we can see in this story in Mark, one, that evil spirits are a thing. There is a cosmic spiritual battle going on that is real. That, and one error we can make when it comes to that is to ignore it, to, to explain it away, that it's not real. Another error we can make, though, on the other extreme, is to 
Give evil spirits a little too much credit. Pay them a little too much attention. Be fixated on them and concentrate on them and be afraid of them as if there's somehow a, a struggle of equals between Jesus and evil spirits. But, oh, there is not. We see very clearly here Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm over everything, authority over evil. And the outcome of the, the battle in the spiritual realms is not in doubt in any way. It's not even just a lopsided matchup, but one where the outcome is sure Jesus wins. He demonstrates that here, shows his authority over an evil spirit. The spirit says to him, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And apparently in those days it was understood that if you could name and say the name of a spirit being that you could somehow gain control or mastery over it. And so this demon is perhaps trying to do that with Jesus by calling him out and naming him, but oh, it does not work. And it backfires tremendously. Jesus replies with a simple word, be quiet, come out of him, and that's it. That's it. The manner in which Jesus does this is striking. There were exorcists in those days who would try to contend with evil spirits, and they usually did it in a very dramatic fashion, a lot of uh, hooting and hollering, perhaps relying on a chant or uh, some magic words, incantation or a, a potion, a, a material object, something like that. Jesus doesn't need any of that. It's just simply his word. Be quiet. It's his word that has power and authority. And that's what Mark's getting here. And people start to add it up. There's, an, you know, the authority in Jesus' teaching, the authority over evil spirits. Oh, Jesus' word is authoritative. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even gives orders to the evil spirits and they obey him. So the authority that he is teaching with, he backs it up with deeds, with action. He's not all talk. He's a proof that the authority he's speaking with is real, coming from someplace real. The authority of Jesus' word, it amazes people. And so his fame begins to spread. And we move on from there. Our second story, we leave the synagogue. We come to the home of Simon and his extended family. We'll call this episode, The Fever Left Her. It's a beautiful thing, a physical healing of Simon's mother-in-law. And this is a dramatic thing. She goes from one minute being bedridden, unable to do anything with a fever, just incapacitated. And the very next moment, she's up, fully restored, doing all the things that she does, running the household, being all that, that she can be. It's a, it's a complete, instantaneous, powerful physical healing that shows Jesus' power to heal, power over sickness. We've seen his authority to teach, his authority over evil spirits, and now his authority over illnesses. And he heals her in a, in a dramatic way. She's, she's fully restored in this moment. And this is the first of many physical healings that we'll see in the Gospel of Mark. It's a very significant part of Jesus' life and ministry. There have been many people who tried to reduce Jesus to simply a great moral teacher, that that's all he was, or even that that's primarily what he was, but you have to butcher the Gospels to come to that kind of conclusion. Rip out page after page, because while there is great and profound, brilliant moral teaching throughout these pages, there's a whole lot more than that. Tremendous acts of power accompanying the words, tremendous actions and deeds that go with the words, the teaching. It's a whole lot more than that. This, these healings are a sign of the kingdom of God, a sign of who Jesus is. Some of the content of Jesus' teaching we did hear last week is in uh, Mark 1, 15, where Jesus announces, the time has come 
The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These healings are a sign of the kingdom. Jesus isn't just talking about the kingdom, but he's bringing it in power. And the kingdom of God is any realm in which God's rightful rule and authority is taking place. And when the kingdom is present, the kingdom comes, what's wrong is made right. What's out of order is put in order. And we see signs of it here as people are being healed. Now, we live in a time where the kingdom has appeared. It, we, it, it is among us, but it's not come in full yet. And so while we do see miraculous answers to prayer for physical healing, I've seen them myself, and perhaps some of you have too. Uh, we don't always, and even these people, Simon's mother-in-law and everyone else we're going to see healed, eventually succumb to something, some ailment, some ailment, illness, some, and ultimately to death itself. But when the kingdom comes in full, once and for all and forever, it will be a realm where there is no sickness, no ailment, no pain, no sorrow, no hurting, no loss, and no death whatsoever. That is coming, and that is what is promised to us. That is yours in Jesus if you're one of his people. And this is a sign of it, a sign of the kingdom, a sign of what is to come. And it's a sign that, again, amazes people, draws attention. A whole crowd gathers now around the door. The whole town comes, and we're told that Jesus healed many who were sick with various ailments. He drove out many demons. Again, Jesus doesn't need special tricks to do it either. There were, there were people who were kind of claimed to be traveling healers back in that day who, again, relied on incantations and magic words or potions or an object that they had. It was all about their method, their trick that they would bring to the table. But Jesus doesn't need any of that. Here, he just simply takes a woman by the hand, lifts her up. She's healed. Later on, we see him touch a leper and also speak, and he's healed. Other times, he'll speak to people without touching them, and they're healed. And he does it in a variety of ways because it's not about a trick. It's not about a method. It's about the authority of Jesus to do what he wants to do and have it done any way he wants to do it. It's a sign of the kingdom. He drove out many demons and healed many people. Mark's goal here is not to be exhaustive. We see a few samples of a demon being cast out, a person being healed, But there were many. The point is not to cover them all. In fact, the gospel writer John, who wrote his gospel last and included many stories not included in the others, concludes by saying, and Jesus did many other things besides these. And if we were to write them down, I suppose not even the whole world would contain the books that need to be written. We see some here, but there were many, many. And this causes quite a stir Now, what we've covered so far up until now, this all happened in one day. We've just seen a day in the life of Jesus and his followers, one day. And so you can imagine the excitement about, well, what about tomorrow? What about the next day? There there is energy, there is excitement, there's a sense of possibility of new things, of hope, of needs being met, of people being healed, of supernatural power every which way. What, What do we do? There's so much excitement. And so as we begin the next day, we'll call this section, That is Why I Have Come. All this excitement, all this potential, all these needs that could be met, things Jesus could do or ought to do or perhaps should do, Jesus knows exactly what to do. He can say with complete confidence, that is why I have come. In the midst of potential chaos and confusion and and overexcitement, he knows exactly what to do. It doesn't seem like anyone else does. 
Simon and his companions come to find him. Hey, everyone's looking for you. They have an idea of what Jesus should do, but they're wrong. And this won't be the last time that Simon tries to tell Jesus what to do and has an idea of what Jesus really ought to do, but is wrong. Perhaps Simon's coming from a good place, but ultimately he's got to learn, and he begins to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And at its most basic level is to follow, not to try to lead, not to try to tell Jesus, hey, come do this, please, you know, not to try to get Jesus to do the things we want him to get done, but to get in step with him to do the things that he wants to do. Simon's like, hey, over here, Jesus, people. Jesus essentially says, I'm going over here, and you, my follower, are going to come with me. It takes Simon a while. There's a pretty steep learning curve to learn how to follow Jesus. I take comfort in that as a fellow stubborn person. It doesn't come naturally to us to, to submit to what Jesus thinks is best rather than what we think is best, to lay down our agenda, our will, to get in step with his will. It's a long process that we'll walk with Simon and others through. It can be a long process for us, but ultimately to follow Jesus means to follow Jesus, not to try to get him over here, but to look where he's going and go there. And he knows where to go. He said, that is why I've come. I've come not to set up a little attractive healing shop where people come from far and wide and we build it up, but I'm here to take this message, this good news of the kingdom, to many, many places. This message of the kingdom accompanied by signs and power, but to take it lots of places. And so he goes. Now, how does he know what to do and no one else knows what to do? Very key, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Seems as though he's the only one who did that, and it's no coincidence that he's the only one who knows what to do. Makes it a point here, very early in the morning while it was still dark, because workers in that day would be up with the sun, and so Jesus gets up before the sun he fights and contends for this time, whatever it takes to get this kind of time. And already it's very hard for him to come by this sort of space, solitude, where he can just dwell in the presence of his Father and pray and talk to him and listen to him and have that interaction, seeking, seeking God. He fights for it. He, he is busy with many important things, and I know we are too. But if Jesus needed this time, how much more do we? got up, left the house, did what it took to get to a solitary place where he prayed. And then in the face of many demands, he knows what to do. And Simon and others, they're, they're kind of driven by other people's demands, other people's requests, perhaps by the, the desire to be helpful or the desire to be important or to build something up. But listen, we can't live life that way, driven by the demands, the compulsions, the needs of others. I mean, we live in a time we're aware of more needs in the world than ever before, and it can be crippling. You can't just be driven by outer demands and by our inner compulsions to, to be important or to be helpful. We've got to be driven by the voice of God so that we know what we're here to do. We know, and we can know that. We can say with confidence, this is why I've come. This is what God has for me. It comes through a habit of regularly getting this time of prayer, of regularly fighting for this time, making space to seek God, to learn from God, to talk and interact with God and to listen to God 
We become discerning people as that happens. We don't always have to just run off and pray in the face of an important decision or request or opportunity. Sometimes, if this is our habit to just know God's heart and be shaped by Him, sometimes we'll just know in the face of a request or a demand or an opportunity. Jesus just knows. You know, Simon doesn't come to him with, with an idea and Jesus says, oh, let me go off and pray about it. He already has prayed, and so he knows what to do. And the longer we follow Jesus, the more I think we just become discerning people in big things and small things where we just, just kind of know. He wants us to be discerning people. You know, when Liz first came to me with the idea of God perhaps leading us to adopt from the foster care system, I didn't really take a lot of time to go off and pray about it. I essentially said, yeah, sounds great. And it's because, though, God had actually been shaping my heart over a long course of time through regular solitude, regular prayer, regular time in Scripture, and regular hearing from Him. He'd been forming my heart for just such a moment that when I actually heard the invitation, I knew it was time. Now, saying yes, I've I've been driven to pray fervently every day ever since. But Jesus wants to shape us into discerning people. We don't just pray when something big comes up. We fight for this time every day so that big, small things come up. We discern his will, and we know what he's got us here for. Jesus did that. And so he moves on from Capernaum to many other places, all throughout the whole region. It's a large region of Galilee where he spoke in their synagogues and cast out demons. We just saw one episode of it of an encounter in a synagogue, Jesus teaching, casting out a demon. But again, Mark's not trying to cover it all, but he said, this that you saw here, this happened in towns all over the place. And so his fame spread. Now, as Jesus moved on from Capernaum, we get one more interaction. The first person he came across as he moved on from there, a man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Be clean. Of all the healing stories that Mark could have recorded, he chose this one because it's really important. It's a really important one. Leprosy in the Bible, it was a pretty big deal. It's a loaded thing, a loaded disease. You can look in Leviticus 13 and 14 for some helpful background information. Now, these chapters uh, are long chapters that go on at length and in gory detail about skin ailments. A few weeks back, Father Len talked about some parts of the Bible that are sort of like the green stuff inside a lobster. That's actually quite nourishing if you consume it, but at first glance makes you go, ugh. Leviticus 13 is like that. Lots of detail about skin diseases. But helpful background if you want to dive in to understand more fully what's going on here. A person would be inspected by a priest, their, their skin defilement inspected to see if it was leprous, a really contagious thing. And if it was found that it was leprosy, then that person had to be set apart, kind of quarantined and cut off from the rest of the people. They had to wear clothes that you would wear if you were in mourning. They had to shout, unclean, unclean, to warn people so that others wouldn't be contaminated. Imagine that, isolated socially, perhaps from their family and from the the corporate worship life of people of God. They weren't allowed to go to the temple, to the place where people gathered to worship God, all the while suffering from a very painful condition. So we don't know much of the details of this, this guy's background, but we can surmise 
it was horrible and extremely painful, a painful disease on, on so many levels. Somehow, he sees the authority that Jesus has. If you are willing, you can make me clean. To acknowledge that Jesus has the authority to make him clean. No one had the power to do that except God himself. And the leper sees that in Jesus. You have the authority to make me clean. If you're willing, what does Jesus do with his great power, with his great authority? He is willing. Be clean, he says. And he heals this man too. In an instant from a painful, horrible, degenerative disease, clean in an instant. But Jesus heals him on every level, addresses all of who this guy is, heals the physical condition. That in itself would have been a tremendous relief, a tremendous gift, but there's more. You know, nowhere in Leviticus actually does, does it say that it's a person's fault if they get leprosy. But people being what they are, human nature being what it is, people started to take on that popular idea. Well, if someone's got leprosy, there must be something really wrong with them. They must be really vile in the sight of God that God would smite them with this sort of thing. And so it became not just a painful, isolating condition, but one where people would look down on them. There was a stigma attached to it as if these people were lesser and worse than everybody else. So Jesus cuts through that too. I'll never forget studying this story in the context of our Thursday recovery group here at The Journey and how they could relate to this Man, you know, start, not just the disease, the horrible, painful disease of addiction, but the stigma that comes with it, too. And to see how Jesus responds, cures the disease, yes, but cuts through the stigma. This guy who nobody would have touched for perhaps years, Jesus reaches out and touches him. Anyone else, for a, however long he'd been sick, people would see him and shrink away, go the other way. I don't want to come anywhere near you. Jesus cuts through that, tears down the stigma, reaches out and touches this man. Heals the disease and the stigma. And he wants to restore him fully in every way to the whole community and all the relationships and the spiritual life of worship among God's people. That's why he, set, he sends him away to go to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded. This is all in Leviticus 14. A priest would inspect somebody who was clean from leprosy, and, and if it, it was found to be so, the priest would, they'd do some sacrifices, and the priest would pronounce the person clean. You are, you are back in. You are admitted to fully participate in worship. Jesus wants this for this guy, so he tells him, go and, and do that so you get the full, clean bill of health. It'd be as if today you had been struggling with a disease, and you, you experienced a miraculous healing from God. And, and the instruction would be, well, don't just run around saying, oh, Jesus healed me. Uh, and people might believe you. They might think you're nuts. But actually, go back to the doctors. Show them. Go through a full range of tests and scans and let the doctor say, wow, they all came back clean. There's not a trace of this disease anywhere. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, this healing is real. It's a testimony to them and to others. So Jesus wants that full restoration for him. Now, again, though, we see following Jesus doesn't come naturally to us. Even when we encounter his power in such a, a profound way, this man kind of runs off and does something else other than what Jesus instructed. But that doesn't take away the incredible love and, and mercy that, that Jesus showed him, his desire to see this man well, and his doing whatever it takes to make this man well. Here we see what kind of authority Jesus really is. 
It's astounding in the beginning of, of these stories. Wow, there's an authority here like unlike anything they've ever seen. That can be a scary thing, but we see Jesus is the kind of authority who uses it and does with his power acts of mercy, stooping down, identifying with the lowest of the low, drawing near to those on the margins, using his authority to heal, to bless, and to restore. That's the kind of king he is, as he's, as he's exhibiting these signs of the kingdom, making things right. He has like the greatest authority in all the universe, and with it, the greatest love, compassion, and humility in all the world. He uses his authority to get with us. And, and one more thing about Jesus reaching out and touching this man, it's not just an act of compassion that breaks across a stigma, but technically speaking, by doing what he did, Jesus made himself ceremonially unclean in this moment, according to the Jewish law. He actually made himself unclean that this man could become clean, took the uncleanness upon himself so this man could go free and have new life. You better believe this points forward to what Jesus does. His ultimate act of setting people free, his ultimate act of cleansing unclean people, of forgiving sinful people, is not to do it from a distance, a detached person, but to get down right in there and to actually take our place, to take our sin, to take our shame, to take our uncleanness all upon himself so that we can then share in his life. That's the kind of king Jesus is. One of the best sermons I've ever come across is one that I read, not heard, because it's almost 300 years old, by Jonathan Edwards. The title of the sermon is The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. <laughs> and we don't really talk like that anymore. The point is Jesus is excellent beyond excellence in so many ways and in ways that seemingly don't even belong together, but they come together in him infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite worthiness of good and infinite patience under suffering, the very holiness of God embodied and a radical embrace of those who are unholy. This is Jesus. I mean, It'd be amazing. He's more excellent in any of these ways than anyone else out there, let alone all of them together. There's no one like him. There is no one like Jesus. All together, the, the greatest authority and power in all the world, and yet the greatest condescension, humility, love, and grace you'll ever find all together in him. And we're just getting started. You know, we have just completed chapter one of the account of this man's life. We're just getting started, and my prayer for us all, as we go further, we will be captivated, amazed, like the people in that first century synagogue in Capernaum. What is this? Who is this? It's Jesus, and there is no one like him. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for all of, we've seen of who you are, we marvel at you, we adore you, I worship you today. But I know, God, that you're not just alive on the, the pages of this book, but the same Jesus is alive now. We pray, Lord, that we would encounter your authority in our lives, authority over the things that bind us, authority to speak into our lives, to direct us, to show us what to do, where to go. 
We welcome your authority because we know it's good. And you use it to lift up, to restore, to forgive, to heal, to set free. So we welcome your authority. Have your way in our lives in every way. Teach us to run to you, with you, not away from you. We surrender all our ideas of what we think is best. And we lift up to you all the things that are greater than us, knowing that you are greater than them. Let you who captivated and amazed those you encountered in these pages, would you capture us, compel us today, show us who you are, Jesus, and compel us, make us restless to follow you. We pray in your name. Amen.